You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. Hello, everyone, wherever you are in the world. Uh, thank you for joining us for this uh, virtual event on girls' access to education. Uh, it is IOE debate on what if we wanted to overcome COVID-19's impact on girls' access to education. My name is Moses Okech. I'm a professor of uh, international education policy and development here at the IOE at UCL, and I co-direct the Center for Education and International Development. I'm very pleased to be chairing this evening's uh, discussion for you. We'll be considering which strategies were doing most pre-COVID to improve girls' access to education, how the pandemic has impacted on those efforts, and what action is needed now to mitigate that. We have an, esteem, an esteemed international panel to help us reflect on those issues. And I'll introduce our speakers in a moment. Once we've taken opening statements from each of them, we'll move on to your comments and questions. Please use the Q and A future on Slido to share your views on what you are hearing and post questions for me to ask our speakers. You can also tweet about the event using the hashtag IOE debates. So to introduce our speakers, uh, we have Alice Albright. I've known Alice for, for a while and thank you for joining us, Alice. Alice is the CEO of the Global Partnership for Education, the largest global fund dedicated to transforming education in lower income country. Alice has over 30 years experience in the private, nonprofit and public sectors, including as chief financial and investment officer for the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, Gavi. Alice's board memberships include the UNESCO Institute for Statistics and UNICEF's Generation Unlimited Partnerships. Alice also serves as a member of the 2019 G7 Gender Equality Advisory Council. I'm also pleased to say that we've been, uh, we've been joined by Merylis uh, Jogens. Uh, Merylis is senior specialist at the World Bank. Merylis specialisms are in decision science, digital health, and artificial intelligence as tools to improve the efficiency, effectiveness, and the implementation of health and human development programs in low and middle income countries. Our work has included the use of data to improve demand for and provision of health and nutrition and education and social protection services, as well as real world impact evaluations. We are also joined by Girish Menon. Girish is the Chief Executive Officer of STIR Education, S-T-I-R, which supports education systems in India and Uganda. Girish joined STIR just last month after five years as Chief Executive of ActionAid UK, working to improve the lives of women and girls living in poverty. Prior to that, he held posts with WaterAid UK, ActionAid, Plan International, DFID in India, and the Gakan Rural Support Program. Girish is currently also a board member of the Charity Hope and Homes for Children. And finally, we have my colleague, uh, Professor Len Unterholzer. Professor Unterholzer is Professor of, Edu of Education and International Development, and she co-directs the Center for Education and International Development here at UCL uh, with me. Elaine has written extensively on gender and girls schooling in developing countries based in her research across Africa and in India and Bangladesh. She has contributed to the work of many, many national and international organizations, including UNESCO, UNICEF and the UK government. Reflecting the esteem in which her work is held, in 2020, Elaine was made a fellow of the British Academy. I'm quite pleased uh, to be joined by these eminent esteemed uh, professionals and scholars uh, on this debate. And without further ado, I would like to invite our first speaker today uh, to share with us um, uh, her thoughts on the topic of the debate. And our first speaker is uh, Alice Albright. Alice, please. Uh, well, first of all, let me, uh, in addition to, to saying thank you to Moses for 
uh, chairing this. Let me thank UCL uh, for inviting me to join. Um, it, it, this could not be a more important uh, topic right now. I'm delighted to be with here with all the other uh, panelists. Uh, I'm just going to spend a few minutes talking about um, about gender, but very much against the backdrop of where we are as a result of COVID, and uh, then end with uh, some thoughts about why GPE has put gender at the heart of our new strategy. Uh, so let me start with COVID. Uh, COVID has presented to us the biggest disruption to education that uh, certainly in the modern age and perhaps ever. Uh, and it is possible that with COVID, uh, all of the progress that we've seen uh, dating back to the beginning of the MDG era uh, will be lost. Um, so we are faced with uh, an unprecedented crisis and there's a chance that millions of children uh, and many of them will be girls will never, ever, ever get back to the classroom again. Uh, so we are at an unprecedented moment. Uh, the reason why girls uh, are particularly impacted by this, and we saw this uh, with Sierra Leone, for example, following the Ebola crisis, is that when there is a crisis of this nature, it is girls that are hit the hardest. So they're the ones who are most likely not to go back to school. They're the ones who most likely face uh, greater uh, sexual violence, sexual assault, early childhood marriage, FGM, uh, domestic violence, uh, and often, which is uh, often right now, given the economic consequences, they are the ones that uh, families, communities, et cetera, choose not to send back to school. Uh, so COVID itself has presented the education world an unprecedented hurdle uh, to get over. Uh, even before, uh, and this is now talking about gender and girls, even before we were in the COVID crisis, education progress had been stalling, uh, both on the access aspect as well as the equity aspect. And we saw that while there was progress in getting girls into starting school, continuing school, graduating, learning what they needed to, acquiring STEM skills to be in a good position to get into the job market, all of that had really begun to hit uh, some real uh, headwinds. And what we saw is that the, the tried and tested ways of getting girls into school, uh, you know, training more teachers, uh, gender, uh, gender into education planning, uh, working on sexuality education, uh, all of that uh, has been now harder to achieve. Um, so uh, what is, where does it leave us? A um, couple points in terms of what GP is doing. First of all, with regard to COVID itself, uh, GPE responded very quickly to the COVID crisis. Uh, we deployed $500 million of resources to countries to help them overcome the impacts of COVID on their education systems. And this included uh, grants to 66 countries of between uh, seven and $10 million or so each uh, to help them uh, reopen schools, invest in distance learning, uh, and reach out to the most uh, marginalized communities, which tended to be uh, families with girls. Uh, so we've really dug down deep to try to do what we could to help countries uh, overcome the impact of COVID. Um, the second thing we've done is put gender at the heart of our new strategy. It's GPE 2025. Uh, we've gone from uh, a time several years ago where uh, we were talking about gender, but it wasn't really at the heart of our strategy. It is now at the heart of our strategy. So we've gone from an approach that was very much based on gender equity We've now changed it to gender equality, uh, and all of you will be familiar with the differences between equity and equality. Uh, we've now set up a special window uh, that is uh, for gender, but with a special focus on girls' education to give countries uh, additional financial resources to dig down deep and do what is necessary to get girls uh, and other boys when it's applicable, uh, but girls into school. And we've also figured out ways to begin to really uh, reach in terms of building political will at the highest levels uh, around, uh, around gender. Um, so uh, it's been a busy period of time for us. I think that uh, we are in the education world very much in an inflection point due not only to COVID, but also the inequities uh, that the COVID crisis has laid bare, particularly facing girls. Uh, and this is why we are just delighted uh, that the UK and Kenya are together sponsoring our finance campaign, which will be this summer. We've set some very high goals. We're looking to raise at least $5 billion uh, from the donor nations. Uh, and the theme of it, one of the main themes of it will be around girls' education. So uh, we look forward to working with as many people as we can to get the word out. But 
we are at a crisis point uh, in education uh, and we need to prioritize it and put it at the very uh, highest point on the agenda. So let me stop there and I've skated over a lot of material. Uh, I'm happy to go into uh, questions in detail uh, when we get into the Q&A session, but um, thanks again for having me. Thank you, Alice. Uh, we are grateful for those thoughts. Um, I'm going to invite our next speaker with Marilis Georgians. Marilis, please. Thanks very much for the opportunity to be part of this essential and important discussion. As Alice mentioned, we can't think about education without thinking about health. In fact, human capital and the development of a person's full human potential to live a fulfilling life of good health and well-being and productivity is at the essence of the World Bank's work on the Human Capital Project, um, the Human Capital Index, and really improving not just thinking about health, but thinking about education, thinking about social protection, thinking about gender, thinking about jobs, all these issues that have so fundamentally and immensely been affected by COVID. I was asked to reflect today on what we have learned in the world of digital health, and if some of those lessons can be applied to the crisis in education of girls, young women, also boys and, and young men. And I'd say that in the health sector, we have undergone a transformation of thinking about digital health and artificial intelligence, moving from hype to hope to promise and peril. And that's really what we need to focus on when we're thinking about um, what we've learned and how we can apply those lessons to education of young women and girls. I think firstly is an insanely obsessive focus on the user herself. We need to understand where young women and girls are at. We need to understand technologies that they already engage with and technologies and skills and information that is important to them, not just based on what we as the suppliers and the providers of education think is important through the technologies that we find important and relevant and useful, but a focus on the user is absolutely essential. Then I think in an education year, you, the second point is that to move from hype to hope, to promise, to peril, to implementation, um, the second issue is to early on understand the fundamental importance of reducing fragmentation and improving increasing interoperability. This is a lesson we've not learned well in, in health and we're now struggling retrospectively to address that. Where you are allowing a thousand flowers to bloom in terms of digital solutions, you're not creating systems-wide interoperable solutions that are not, not fragmented, but we're learning through one system can be translated to a skill gained acknowledgement in another system. We need this interoperability and we need to think platform, think architecture, think data early on. Brings me to my next point, which is around evidence. Often there has been a tendency in digital health to chase after the next silver bullet. And I think whilst the importance and the relevance of technology as a possible as ways to overcome these pernicious existing, but also now new challenges in education um, is so important. There's also the danger that we chase after the next technology without understanding fully the systems implications and the effectiveness of those solutions. And we need to be wise in bringing these things together. We've learned from the Ebola pandemic a few years ago, for example, that there was an immense focus on digital solutions, but these solutions were implemented in a piecemeal way. And when the pandemic subsided, the solution subsided as well. And we need to think about whilst addressing a crisis, building in a sustainable way. And lastly, I would say that to be successful in this field, private public partnerships are absolutely essential. And then just as a final point in the minute that I have left, data access, data use, but also data privacy and data consent are issues in health that we have struggled with and we have had to learn the hard way in many cases. So as the education sector think about this and as we think about integrated solutions, human capital, human development solutions for the, the human development um, advances for young women and girls, we need to think about how data fits into that, how we use data, but also how we protect the privacy and ensure 
that, that young women and girls are in charge of data and that their caregivers are in charge of the data that is, is available across the system to them and of them, and that they're not just recipients of programs, but that they understand the role that they have to play in their own human development, not just from, from the supplier perspective. Thank you. Thank you, Marilyn, for sharing with us your thoughts and what the World Bank is doing in relation to the debate today. I, I now want to invite our next guest, with, uh, next speaker, sorry, with Girish Menon. Girish, please. Thank you, Moses. Uh, and thank you for inviting me to this panel. It's absolutely amazing to be uh, you know, having these discussions. Uh, uh, it was fascinating to listen to Alice and Merrillis on the different aspects of looking at the whole issue of gender and girl children. Uh, at STIR, uh, our vision is of a world where children develop a love for lifelong learning. Uh, and so to do that, we work in partnership with governments in India and in Uganda, especially at the district level. Uh, we have seen a number of efforts to improve access to education um, and be they be done by governments or non-governmental organizations. Uh, Alice very eloquently spoke about some of the social cultural barriers that come in the way of girls accessing education. And there are a number of organizations working on that. We believe at STIR that our work starts once the children are in school and therefore our design and our interventions and our partnerships are built around making those learning outcomes uh, uh, in a system that works both for boys and girls. So some of the lessons uh, we have learned, which are, I think is quite important to ensure that even post pandemic, the girls are continue with their education are built on some of the, those learnings. So the first one is on systems partnerships. We work entirely through the system. Uh, and this is something that Merrillis pointed out as well, in terms of how do you develop a systems wide approach, a systems wide solution. We tend to refer to it as a learning partnership. And we call it a learning partnership because much of it is about influencing behaviors and cultures of the entire community of teachers and the educational officials who work with them, because we believe that that relationship of trust is really important across the chain and to create an environment where children feel safe in schools. Um, a, a key focus is on role modeling. Uh, and that is again very important when we look at who are the teachers in schools, who are the district officials, for example, what's the impact of having female teachers and female officials in a school environment that improves the engagement levels of girls. So when we talk about lifelong learning, there are six key areas or foundations of lifelong learning as we refer to them. At least two of them, if not all of them, are absolutely related to ensuring that girls are, stay in school and they develop this love for lifelong learning. And those two are on safety and self-esteem. Uh, we recognize that we work in a social cultural environment where there are huge issues of barriers to education, but also how girls see themselves. So it's really important that they develop those skills, that self-esteem for themselves to be in schools, but also that there is a, an environment that is physically and emotionally safe. In a situation as we come out of the pandemic, we are now looking at how can we look at some of the data. We are conscious of the huge challenges of girls coming back to schools who are now out of schools. But equally, as Alice pointed out, there are big issues about financing for education as well, with 97% of the uh, sector being financed by domestic financing by governments. So there are questions of how we can ensure that education remains a priority. Financing is a huge issue uh, that is a priority for the governments, but also how do we work through these partnerships across the systems, across various stakeholders, and particularly ensuring that the environment is safe and environment provides the right stimulation for girls also to feel that they are part of this process of lifelong learning. Uh, and that's what we are building on from our experiences in India and Uganda. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Garish, for sharing with us your thoughts uh, and what Stia is doing in India and Uganda. Uh, finally, I'm going to invite uh, um, our final speaker, uh, Professor Elaine Unterholter. Uh, Elaine, please. Thanks, Moses. And thanks, everyone, um, for the invitation and so interesting to hear the other presentations. I guess as the academic, I'm going to um, take the position of the critic and the um, questioner. Um, 
I'm going to pose the question as to why are we so concerned about girls' education at this moment? Um, for decades, girls have been posed and claimed as the solution. They've been the solution to population growth, to climate uh, crisis, to conflict, to lack of economic growth. And there's the saying that if you educate a girl, you educate the nation or you educate the planet. And then COVID happened. I've scoured the internet and I can't find girls' education being presented anywhere as a kind of social policy version of a vaccine, which is why it's so um, welcome to hear GPE, World Bank, and um, the, some of the NGOs uh, that Girish was talking about claiming an importance for girls' education. But I want to try and unpack that a little bit more. Um, in Presentations of the uh, pandemic, girls uh, appear almost universally in terms of suffering. They might appear as carers, but they're rarely praised or valued for the care they're giving. So that kind of image of the educated girl as the kind of universal savior has been transformed into this kind of poignant image of universal suffering. Um, she's subject to violence, hunger, early marriage, and limited future prospects. Um, but that suffering can be disorienting. If we're only going to focus on the suffering, we're not going to pose questions as to why. What, what, out of what inequalities has the suffering emerged? What intersecting inequalities in local, national, and global processes has produced that suffering. And the um, failure to acknowledge that there were deep faults before and COVID has only deepened them is, is going to be a, to miss a grave step in, uh, in the analysis. So the key point I want to make is we must stop thinking in silos. We must connect girls' education with political, economic, and social inequality and detail the social policies, politics, practice, and research necessary for change. It's easy to write that list. It's really hard to do the analysis that generates the social policy um, to, to affect it. Um, as Alice has said, gender inequalities which limited girls' access to education were there before COVID. They were a feature of failures to provide universal free quality education. Worldwide, 130 million girls were out of school before the pandemic. And all the statistics on enrollment, attainment or progression for many countries show that for on every measure, for every grade beyond primary school, large proportions of poor girls disappear. Um, it's hardest for the poorest girls in the poorest districts and the poorest countries to enter education and to progress and to attain. And the poverty that the World Bank has estimated is that is going to be associated with this pandemic is staggering. A hundred million people are estimated to be pushed into extreme poverty. And on some measures, it's a billion people will be in extreme poverty for decades. So all, what this points to is not seeing education as isolated. We've got to link education with social protection policies, with policies that address all those intersecting inequalities of gender, of race, of class, of ethnicization, of geopolitics. Um, we, we can't ask what the educated girl will do for us. We have to say, what will we do for that girl? And in doing that, what will that do for all of us? Thank you. Thank you, Elaine, for thought-provoking questions and reflections. Um, uh, that uh, brings us to the end of the first bit of our debate today. We've heard from the speakers and they have all raised important questions, but also reflected from the organizations and their work. Uh, before I can move to the Q&A session, 
I just I just want to reflect with the speakers in case each each any one of them wants to respond to any of the points that has been raised by their colleagues uh, who are speaking. Uh, Alison, I can see your hand is up. Alice, sorry, Alice, your hand is up. Please, the the microphone is yours. <clears throat> Thanks, Moses. Uh, and what what great comments. I thought I would just briefly come back, Elaine, to some of the questions uh, that you've just raised. Um, and in particular, what you were saying, that it's a grave step to miss what happened beforehand. I think that we do need to step back. And I think that what has gotten us to where we are now are four things that are happening that are either related or happening at the same time, but not necessarily related. Um, one was the degree of inequity facing girls before COVID, and that was clear, and you've just gone through additional data uh, around that. The second thing that's happened is I think that the education sector, not to oversimplify it, but has moved from really looking at equity to equality. Equity, of course, is are there equal numbers of girls and boys? Equality is looking at the barriers, and that's something that I think has really come to the surface over the last five years, let's call it. And it has really shaped the policy around gender. And it's, it's something that we've taken very seriously at GPE. And it's looking at the non-directly education matters that affect education. This is early childhood marriage, for example, FGM, and some of the sort of peripheral but critical societal uh, issues. Um, I think the third thing that's connected uh, that is driving the discussion is the rapid digitalization of the world around us. And there is inequity in the availability of digital solutions uh, between girls and boys for whatever reason. Uh, and if we don't overcome those, um, those, that inequity, if you think about you know, the, the job market of the future, we're gonna permanently keep girls out of what the job market looks like, not to mention whatever tools are available now, not allowing girls to, to participate and use those tools. Uh, and then I think the fourth thing is the economic consequences. Um, you know, we, we've just talked about the number of, you've just talked about the number of people who will be living in poverty. Um, the economic consequences are severe. And I think that we all know that when choices need to be made between who gets sent to school, it's often the little boy and the brothers that get sent to school and the sisters that are left home. Uh, and so that is further fueling uh, the inequity. So um, I think those things begin to explain why did we get to where we are now? Um, and, and it does go back to beforehand, but COVID sort of laid on top of it, plus the digitalization piece has made it all a lot more challenging. Thank you, Alice. Any other thoughts, uh, reflection to what Alice has said uh, in response to Elaine's point? Uh, Elaine, please, go ahead. Uh, thanks, Moses, and thanks, Alice. I, I just wanted to add two kind of developments of the point Alice is making. Um, the first is um, how um, the gender around the technologies that Marilee spoke about, uh, the gender inequalities around those can't be, it's not an add-on, it's absolutely hardwired. And I, I was very struck at um, a presentation I heard by Paramita Sen from India's Sewa about how the, at the, when the pandemic uh, struck, um, it was women's assets that were sold first. And one of the things thousands of women sold were their mobile phones. And without those mobile phones, their children couldn't access the digital uh, lessons that were being sent out. So it's, it, um, there's a kind of knot of problems around gender inequality and you, you can't just pull one thread and hope it will unpull all of them. You need to address everything together and the main thing to address is universalization. You know, poor social protection, very poorly, um, you know, just uh, very poorly delivered, low quality education. Those risky um, choices about which child you'll send to school, you're going to keep a girl home to, to look after children, to look after her siblings, because after 10, she can do that. And that's explains the girls drop out from school. So we need 
to think in the round and we need to link up with each other, all the different people represented on this debate as well as joining in. And I think the problem with girls' education and that kind of problem of thinking it's the solution has been that it was kind of sent out to lead everything else. It can't lead anything without everything standing around it. And um, yeah, so I, thank you. Thank you, Elaine, for, for, for your, your response. Um, Marilise or uh, Grish, do you have any thoughts to add before we open it to now to the, to, to the audience questions? Thank you, Moses. Um, I want to pick up on the point that was just made and just to say that I, I entirely support it. I, I think that, you know, gender inequality, tech inequality are issues that we concomitantly need to address to focusing on the promise of digital solutions to help overcome some of the education inequalities that exist and have been exacerbated by, by COVID. Um, we've learned this lesson again in, in digital health where it's fundamental that as a Ministry of Health focusing on digitalization and the use of digital innovation to um, address some of the health system problems that there is a government-wide perspective to that. There are issues to do with connectivity of health facilities, equally schools. There are issues to do with connectivity at home. There are issues to do with smartphone access. There are issues to do with the mere cost of data. There are issues to do with the interoperability of systems. There are issues to do with sometimes as simple as having a government-wide help desk to be able to answer questions that teachers or public sector workers might have about how to interact with technology. Those issues need to be solved government-wide and not just in any single sector. And I think it's this government-wide perspective, cybersecurity, connectivity, wireless access, those issues we need to think about as well as we think about the specific solutions to solve specific challenges in, in, in girls' education. Otherwise, we will either find duplication or we will find paralysis and an inability to scale these solutions. And if we want to design for scale whilst focusing on the low-hanging fruit, it's important to keep both these sides of the coin in mind. Thank you. Uh, Grish, did you want to say anything or do I open it up now to the panel? I'm giving you a chance because thank you. Uh, all yeah. the other three have spoken. Yes. Yes, thank Go you, ahead. Moses. Just to quickly add what Merylis just said about strengthening a system-wide approach and looking at the point of teachers as well. I think when we talk about the systems-wide approach and given the fact that we have a huge uh, female work participation when it comes to teachers and educational officials, in relation to the issue of gender inequality, it is also to look at what are the conditions that will ensure that women teachers have the same access to training facilities, which they have lost out during the pandemic. We have come across anecdotal evidence where women teachers have talked about some of the challenges in, act in accessing virtual training, for instance, because they don't have either the technology or access to technology, or they are in situations where the caring responsibilities have increased. So again, if you look at the impact of girls, it's important to look at the ecosystem that is around them, especially since role modeling uh, is such an important part of bringing about a change in the behavior and the culture of the education system. So thank you, uh, Elaine, for also highlighting the point of gender inequalities. Thank you, Girish. Um, I'm now going to um, read out uh, some, some of the questions from the audience who are participating in this debate uh, behind the scenes. And if you have any questions, if you're in the audience, please keep using uh, Slado and we'll pick them up. Uh, there's a question here from Rachel, which I think is uh, fitting in the, the ongoing discussion. And here's the question, how can we move beyond a girls are a more vulnerable discourse to focus on how gender and other identities and inequalities intersect? What concrete tools uh, can help policymakers direct resources to girls and boys facing multiple forms of marginalization to enable them to learn and thrive? Uh, that's a question that has come from Rachel. I think, I think we, can, we can pick that up. There's another question which I think is also related to uh, what we are discussing. This is from Jenny uh, Rob Robson. Jenny is asking, how might the panel, this, uh, panel suggest that education systems be strengthened and aligned with other societal systems to provide sustainable education for girls? 
So I think that is that is a good question. And the final third question that I would ask the panel to reflect on is what is required to measure the impact of COVID on girls' learning and not just quantity impact on numbers of missed classes or changes in the number of out-of-school children. So let's start with those and then we move on. I can touch on, on some of those. Um, I think on, on the question of how to move beyond is, uh, multiple inequalities, I mean, first of all, you're right. Um, very right. You know, there are various forms of marginalization that often collide into one another, be it, you know, poverty, gender, uh, children with disabilities, children who live in remote, remote areas, uh, et cetera, ethnic minorities, those often collide. Uh, I think one of the, the biggest tools that we need to uh, help equip governments with to address that is much better data. Um, often governments don't have a really good handle on how uh, disparately available or unevenly available public services are. Uh, and that would be a starting point. Um, certainly money is an issue as well. And um, we could we could spend an awful lot of time talking about all the different policy measures from a finance and fiscal space perspective that are going to be necessary uh, to recover the ground lost on human capital investments in general. So, so that's another big one. Um, on the question of uh, sustainable education for girls, I mean, that the word sustainable now you know, has many meanings. One is literally environmental curriculum, but there's also sustainable uh, in the sense of um, finance. Let me talk about the finance piece. Uh, there do need to be some decisive actions at the international level uh, about looking at the fiscal space issues that countries face for investing in education. Countries are now often faced with either putting a dollar towards debt service or a dollar towards education. So there need to be some decisions made about furthering uh, debt relief, debt cancellation, uh, and things of that nature. Um, and then on, this, on the environmental sense of the word, I'll let other people uh, talk about that one. On the out-of-school children, just to cite the numbers, uh, there were 260 million children out of school before COVID. That number went up to 1.6 billion. With COVID, we're now down to something less. I think we don't quite have the numbers. Uh, what we are very worried about is that there's an estimated between 20 and 24 million girls who will never go back to school uh, for all the reasons that everyone has been speaking about. And uh, if you think about the long-term impact of that, uh, it's, um, it's, it's extreme. Uh, and so we really need to figure out how as a, as a globe to get those girls back to school. We're at sort of the threshold moment um, uh, for those uh, children who will never get back to school. Thank you, Moses. Uh, and I'd just like to pick on this question from Jenny on systems uh, strengthening and sustainability. Uh, that's absolutely crucial uh, in terms of how do you uh, really ensure that the, uh, the learning outcomes are sustained. So uh, Stir's approach has been to work on intrinsic motivation. Uh, we are conscious of a number of uh, initiatives taken by the government and non-state non actors as well to improve on some of the extrinsic factors, which might be to do with teacher salaries, for instance, or to do with the infrastructure. What we are trying to look at is that what, uh, what will intrinsically motivate teachers to stay engaged in class, to connect with their children, to be uh, role models, to ensure that the classroom is safe to be able to engender the qualities of curiosity and critical thinking within a class situation so that children do develop that love for lifelong learning. But we then realize that there are many drivers or many barriers to teachers having the interesting motivation. One of the key ones being the recognition of the role itself. In many, in many countries, it's not considered to be a very glamorous occupation. It's, it's normally people who can't get jobs in some of the other sectors who come into this sector, but it is such an important role in terms of shaping a, a child's future, or as we say, preparing a child for a world of unknown unknowns. So then the approach in terms of a systems change is to work from the level of the child to the teacher to the head teacher to people who work at an intermediary level to the district level and right up to the national ministry level looking at each of those layers understanding the value of their contribution and how each one of those actors can uh, can can be intrinsically motivated to to uh, contribute to that child's education um, 
And more recently, we've been working on what we call the central learning partnerships, which is about having those uh, mechanisms at a state level or a provincial level or a regional level or the national level where it is appropriate so that they're embedded into the education systems, including in districts or parts of the country that would like to replicate some of those principles. Uh, so uh, the point is, uh, which I wanted to stress, is about how do you build that intrinsic motivation across every single actor within the education system so that it delivers and it delivers within the ecosystem and within the social and cultural context of that country. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Girish. Um, I'm, I'm reading quite a number of questions. So Marilise, go ahead. Uh, I will choose the ones to, uh, to ask, but I mean, uh, there are several questions coming through. Uh, so when you see my head down, it means I'm also reading the questions and deciding which one to put to the audience. But Marilise, uh, the microphone is yours. Thank you, Moses. I want to pick up on the question that Rachel asked in, in Girish's response. And I would like to challenge us to think beyond, the, to take the point that Girish made and to think beyond the education sector itself, right? I think the question is, how do we, the question Rachel asked us and challenged us to think about is, how do we put girls at the center of this? And how do we make sure that the services that they receive is, is what they need? And I think the way, one of the important areas to start doing this is to think about our target audiences in a different way. We, we have, for example, in Southern Africa, just completed a piece of work where we used machine learning to cluster the clients of health education and social protection services and systems across all three of these programs, right? So if we can think about adolescents and young women and young men and boys, if we can think about them in an integrated way, not just about are they in school or out of school? What is their age group? Not just from a health perspective, are they receiving sexual reproductive health services? How are they receiving those services? But if we could combine all these different data that we have across these sectors and cluster and classify groups of adolescents and young women who are similar based on their health education and social protection needs, we can think about differentiated care to these different groups of adolescents and young women. And we can design integrated human capital services that delivers not just health, but education and social protection services in an integrated way. I think this integration of implementation and integration of how we think about our target populations when we segment and provide design policies for them, this policy integration starts with integrating the people we're all trying to serve and help through the education, health, and social protection systems that we're, that we're creating. Thank you. Thank you, Marilis. Um, Elaine, did you want to respond to any of the questions? Um, yes, uh, Moses, I, I, I guess I, I, I'm very interested in, in Marilis's vision of, um, of integration. And uh, Alice, the, the point around data and finance that um, Alice was making. And I think it's important to um, think about um, understanding um, those processes, not just as interventions into social policy, but bringing various ways of understanding the forms of inequality, be they political, economic, social, or cultural, that bear on the education space. I think too often in um, uh, we think about education as just addressing the issues of learning, of progression, of teachers' employment, all of which are absolutely essential and need to be addressed. But we also ha have to understand how those big processes work on that. And we need to integrate the very good measures we have of those processes with the uh, understanding how education systems work. So it's, it's joining up data Join, joining up the uh, the conceptualizations that organize data uh, that will allow us to think more holistically about social policy, about um, uh, fiscal policy in relation to finding the money, um, and uh, then yes, uh, uh, in relation to the last question about how would we know about the impact of COVID on girls' learning, we have to ask the girls but we also have to widen our concept of learning. So it's not just 
what was easily measured, which was reading and arithmetic and certain packages of knowledge, it has to take in aspects of the psychosocial and the emotional and the, um, the, the, the sense of agency and being able to change, which is what we would all hope for. Thanks, Moses. Thank you, Elaine. Thank you very much. I have another set of questions to read out from the audience. So let me pick them up. I have a question here from Asha. Are there any collaboration projects amongst the various organizations in the field with the aim of co-creating and implementing solutions? If so, how are these collaborative efforts taking place and are they open to others to join? So that's one question. Uh, there is another question here, which I think I could also um, raise. And this is from, uh, Jingyu Liang is related to the first the question I've just spread uh, uh, out. What are the three biggest challenges in girls' education and why? And the last one that I would like to uh, put to the panel is a question from, um, uh, this question um, is from, uh, is from John. Um, and uh, John is, uh, is saying little, is said to date about what we know works. Cash given to girls, is that, can that work? Female teachers, can that work? Community mobilization, uh, facility enhancement. Um, so what, what is your take on what works? Uh, what, what is it that we know works? And, 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 and you know, how does that get carried forward? And the last question, I think I, I can take this one because I also thought it was interesting. And this question is, asking about, um, about the UK, but it also has another uh, twist to it. Why is girls' education uh, getting such attention from the UK government and other governments at the moment? Are uh, the issues surrounding girls' education very different across different countries or continents? If so, what can we learn from those differences? Let's try and respond to those ones for now if we have the time to be able to do it. Alice, please, thank you for offering thank you. to start uh, again. Sure, uh, and, and, I mean, we could spend just a long time on each one of them. So I'm gonna try to just touch on them uh, all very briefly and I'm happy to have a follow-up uh, conversation. On uh, the co-collaboration and implementing solutions, uh, let me encourage you to uh, reach out to different organizations and the government uh, and partners at the local level. There's always a group called the Local Education Group, which is the group of all of those organizations uh, that, depending on the country, tackle these issues in policy discussions with the government. I remember being, for example, uh, in Kampala, uh, Jirish, I met with some of your colleagues about a year ago at STIR. They're doing some great work uh, in Kampala. Uh, so that's an example of a, a very grassroots way to get involved. Um, in terms of the three biggest challenges, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to try to boil it down: uh, poverty, uh, safety, uh, including, uh, and I would put into that the availability of trained female teachers to act as role models in the classroom and social and cultural practices. And uh, the more that I talk to people. Uh, on the ground, the latter is um, is definitely an issue. I'm talking about early marriage, FGM, and one way possibly to begin to uh, to address that is to work very closely with local traditional leaders. Uh, the UK, um, the UK has taken on girls' education as a, a a big priority of theirs. I think they've come to realize um, how, in many ways, educating girls is one of the major linchpins of progress around development. I applaud them for that. Uh, in terms of what differs continent to continent, uh, there are some common themes, but there are some differences. I think some of the common themes will be exclusion, poverty, um, some of the social uh, and cultural issues, uh, safety, but actually how that, that is uh, seen in practice country to country differs. Uh, and I wouldn't be able to go through exactly country to country to country, but uh, I think it's probably too simplistic to think that it's exactly the same set of problems country to country to country. Uh, so that I'm afraid that's all I have time for, but happy to have a follow-up uh, if necessary and interested. Thanks for the questions. Thanks, Alice. Any other? Yes, Girish, please, go ahead. 
Thank you, Moses. And just to build on what Alice just said, uh, there is a lot of co-creation that happens at the most relevant unit. And in STIRS experience, it has been the district level where we bring in the, uh, the administrative side of the district and the, the, the training side at the district level. And that, that's where the co-creation actually happens, working hand in hand with all the participants uh, in terms of the officials and the teachers to develop what we call learning improvement cycles so that they set their own curriculum in terms of how to improve their own capacities and build on their motivation. And in some cases where organi other organizations exist, we work alongside them as well. So they're part of the program. So I would, uh, to Asha's question, uh, definitely in the districts where you're working, please look out for these kind of initiatives. And I know other organizations do likewise as well. Uh, in in terms of uh, the challenges, uh, I'll just like to highlight the challenge of uh, you know, looking at education from a lens of only the academic content. Now, academic content is absolutely important, but again, the higher level purpose of education is about how do you prepare children for a world that is so much more challenging? How do we develop the resilience? How do we develop the understanding on issues of inequality and injustice that Elaine talked about, or climate change, for instance? So it's, and it's really important that we focus on those foundations on lifelong learning, building on issues of critical thinking and curiosity, which is so much more important now, uh, especially when we're trying to get children back and girls in particular back after the COVID crisis and keep them in schools so that they remain engaged and they, they remain and not just engaged, but when they come out of the education system, they're able to access the job market, something that Alice alluded to, uh, but also be citizens, uh, be leaders at the community level or the national level. So again, it's about how do we manage the challenge of ensuring that girls have as much access to lifelong learning as boys do. Thank you. There's another question here that uh, I sorry, can Moses. Raise. Sorry, Moses. Elaine had her hand up. Oh, Elaine, sorry. I didn't see your hand, Elaine. Uh, go ahead, Elaine. It's okay, Moses. Thank you. I, I, I just wanted to build again on, on, on the answers and, and slightly extend them a little bit. I mean, in addition to the kind of uh, lists of three we've we've had, I wanted to to add um, my own list of three, which is I don't want you to think of it as an either or to the other lists of three, but I, I do want these to be on the agenda. I think one of the challenges facing girls education is the detachment of girls education as a policy initiative from discussing other forms of gender and intersecting inequalities. And so I think the answer to that is this kind of integrated policy approach I've been talking about. I think another huge challenge to uh, girls' education is poverty, but poverty isn't only poverty of money. It's, it's poverty in treatment, it's poverty in uh, exclusion, it's poverty of overlooking wants. And it's, it's, so it's those kinds of issues of failing to give uh, esteem to the poorest and listen to them and engage with them and uh, take seriously their experiences and what really builds um, integrated forms of social protection. And then I, I think the last thing is that girls' education is not given a high profile. I mean, it's extraordinary that the UK government and wonderful that it is and has promoted programs like Girls Education Challenge and that GPE is, um, uh, you know, hardwiring uh, concern with girls and gender equality into their organizations. But those have been come out of decades of uh, policy discussion, debate, advancing by activists in different, different communities. And the solution, I think, is to keep these um, constituencies that are um, engaging with uh, these issues talking to each other, working with each other and learning from each other. And I, I think one of, uh, while there's much to learn from the way different governments engage with the issue, we don't have enough opportunities to do that. So that um, the, the, the last question that was posed about how different governments engage, um, that, that would itself be a fascinating um, 
day conference to organize or exchange of views. And it's uh, so that, uh, you know, the international policy space still needs to be built and um, furnished with many ideas, many experience, and uh, a huge uh, body of practical knowledge. Thank you. Thank you, Elaine. Um, Marilyn, Marilyn, did you want to add something to what has been said? I want to reflect on um, a three-year impact evaluation that I had the privilege of being involved in in Eswatini. It was an HIV program that provided cash transfers to girls and young women, adolescent girls and young women, to remain in school. And we saw that the impact of that intervention was a 60% reduction in HIV incidence, which is akin to what HIV treatment, ARVs, provide. So this is a social solution, um, as Elaine and Alice alluded to earlier, um, that was as powerful as a biomedical solution. One of the things that was really interesting to us in the focus groups that we did after the study had concluded was with the girls who had not gone back to school. And, and I'd like to make a plea for them because I think that whereas what we've seen during the COVID crisis, these in large numbers of girls and young women who will not be going back to school. For absolutely, we need to try and get them back into school. But for some of them, because of their life circumstance, going back to school is not something that they're interested in doing. It's not something their life circumstances changed. Maybe they've had a child by now. Maybe they got married. Whatever that reason is, I think we need to also think about providing solutions for them that yes, I'm, I'm not suggesting that getting um, girls and adolescent girls back into school is, is not important. That's not my point. But I think that these alternative solutions for ensuring that these young women and girls, adolescent girls for whom going back to school is not something that they in the course of their life is interested in doing. Let's find ways of engaging them, not just in education, but in other ways that they can still fulfill their human potential. I think we need to think about both these solutions and some of the digital tools that are being developed can really help us to, to get there, to think about education beyond the classroom, not as exclusively within the classroom, not suggesting classroom education is not, is not important. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Liz. We have two minutes left to end this debate. There is one specific question that I can put forward. And this question is from Elizabeth. Um, and Elizabeth is simply asking that, uh, you know, uh, refugee girls were already quite affected by their refugee status. How is this exacerbated by the COVID um, uh, pandemic? And what, what, does, what view does the panel have in relation to the debate around improving access and equality for girls? I can very quickly, um, we're not seeing a lot of data on how COVID is impacting um, girls in refugee camps, but I can assure you that it's having an, an impact. Even before COVID, um, the world had reached sort of a high watermark point in terms of IDPs and, and people living in refugee camps, and there were hundreds of millions of children excluded from school as a result. So we haven't seen the data yet, but I can predict that it's going to be uh, devastating and it's something that we're going to have to take a look at when the data comes out. Thank you, Alice. And uh, we've come to an end. Um, Elaine, you wanted to say something for just 30 seconds. Oh, I just wanted to tell uh, Elizabeth that there's, um, uh, there's a news uh, service from North Africa that was reporting a number of uh, reports of high marriages, uh, high numbers of early marriages amongst girls in refugee camps, which I, um, she might want to follow up as one, one very clear uh, outcome of COVID on girls' education in the one of the most vulnerable populations in the world. Thanks. Thank you, Ellen. I just want to thank our four speakers for taking the time to reflect uh, on this very important point. Um, um, they have raised critical issues, but also shared with us their own um, views, plus their experiences in this area. As you can, you can tell, all of them um, are, are uh, esteemed speakers, uh, esteemed um, internationally recognized in this area. Uh, so thank you, Alice. Uh, thank you, Mary Liz, and uh, thank you, Grish, and thank you, Len, 
uh, for joining us today. Thank you to our audiences and on behalf of IOE and uh, UCL, thank you for joining the IOE debate. I carry on with the debates and let's make the world a better place. I totally agree that a focus on girls' education will definitely make the world a better place. But I also I join them to, um, to, to express my own view that I think the pandemic is uh, affecting girls uh, disproportionately and we have to do something in relation to education for that. So again, thank you. And this marks the end of the debate. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 